the mutiny. And you now have permission to go away and make that new thing happen. And it would sort of be a, an almost like a redistribution of power in the room very, very quickly. And it was something we decided started calling professional rule breaking. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. So, Be More Pirate. Um, for those of you who don't know, it started life as a book a book by a guy called Sam Conniff. And uh, to be honest with you, the first time I picked up Be More Pirate to read, I read two or three pages and metaphorically threw it across the room. Um, I didn't actually throw it because it was my Kindle. I don't want to break it. Um, but I read two or three pages and realised that this is going to be a book about social change. And I just had enough of that. Uh, I'd worked for seven years in a social innovation charity slash think tank and I just had enough of earnest words and platitudes and well-presented reports. And I'd really come to believe that the people who were talking about change the most really were the least invested in putting anything on the line to make it happen. And um, this was back in summer 2018. And from where I was standing, um, we were having all these new charities and social enterprises spring up, but social inequality was still growing. Climate change is accelerating and the government was becoming ever more farcical. And all of that is still true today. And so I didn't do anything about it. I didn't. I just went on a sabbatical. Um, so I had enough of my job and went and sat on a beach in Vietnam and was about to sort of abandon ship and do something completely different. Um, when a friend sent me an unusual job advertisement for a right-hand pirate, she said, I think this is maybe up your street. And it was about the right time that I was just about running out of money as well. Um, so I went back and I, I read through the job advert and I thought, oh my God, this is the guy of the do the book I didn't like. So I went back to Be More Pirate and I, and I read the whole thing. And although I still had questions, I decided to apply. And then I flew back to London um, for an interview with Sam. And <laughs> at this point, because I'd read the book, I also knew that there was... Um, a handy alliterative framework running through the book, The Five Pirate Principles. Sam admits now that he thinks, or, you know, he wrote it, put it in because he thought business books should always have an alliterative framework, which Vern just proved correct. Um, but The Five Pirate Principles, rebel, draw strength from standing up to the status quo, rewrite, bend, break, but ultimately rewrite the rules, reorganize yourself, collaborate to achieve impact, redistribute power, fight for fairness, and make an enemy of exploitation, and retell, weaponize your story. And I just thought, that's really convenient, five R's. Um, and so I went into the interview and I asked Sam, you know, is this more style over substance? And he said, you tell me. And then we had a really interesting conversation. And he said, yeah, I wrote this book because I wanted to vent all my frustrations about the world. I didn't know what else to do with it. But since then, something really unusual has happened. I've got this, you know, growing swell of interest. I've got an email 
folder full of 500 pretty much unread emails of people all over the world who've taken to this and said, you know, this is the spirit and the energy that we need. And we're rebelling and we're rewriting and doing all this stuff. And he said, I, I just don't know what to do with it all. And I need help. And I need someone to make sense of what it means to be more pirate in the 21st century. Um, and that sounded like an interesting challenge. And so then we went on a bit of a journey. So this is really Be More Pirate 2.0. This is what happened after the first book, which is now in, an, in a new book. <laughs> um, but it started here on the replica of the first ship that circumnavigated the globe, the Golden Hind, which is parked by London Bridge. I'm sure some of you have seen it. How they did it on a wooden boat, I have no idea. But um, this is you know, Francis Drake's uh, ship. And so we gathered 100 of our modern pirates back in February 2019 and sort of started to talk about what they were actually rebelling around. And I started to build relationships with these people and understand uh, what parts of the book had really appealed to them. Um, and the first thing that I realized about Be More Pirate was the enormous power in the story. This is a saying from the 1600s. Those who would go to sea for pleasure would go to hell as a pastime. Being a sailor in the Navy was so bad. 40% um, of sailors died on any voyage, and they pretty much went round all the ports, press-ganged people into coming on board. They over-recruited because they knew about the death toll. So no, really, nobody really volunteered to be a sailor. Um, really, really poor wages, um, which to me changed the notion of why you would become a pirate when I did this, this research. People essentially became pirates, not because they were more bloodthirsty or because they were more you know, greedier than everyone else, which is what we're kind of told to believe, mainly by Walt Disney, but um, initially the establishment, they threatened. People became pirates because they wanted to be less miserable. Um, and so the story of piracy um, that's unveiled in Be More Pirate had really caught people's imagination. It was like the secret history that they could kind of con onto and they could see themselves in the story. Um, they could see the parallels between where pirates were in the 1600s and where we are today when we're facing all these potentially huge societal shifts um, and we have choices to make. And the original pilot, pirates, as I said, were just sailors in the Navy, um, ordinary citizens who kind of just decided to take a punt and go off and form crews of their own. Um, but they didn't have very, you know, didn't have very good odds at sea. They were, the average size of a pirate crew was about 80 compared to sort of a, a navy of several thousands who, who, you know, if they would be hunting them down. So pirates had to think of a way of uniting this band of strangers that had never worked together before, had no automatic roles and responsibilities, and work out how they were going to work together. And that's where it got really interesting, and they started to innovate. And a pirate ship was where you saw the first form of social insurance. If you lost a leg or an eye in battle, you would get actual compensation. You'd get like eight pieces of eight or something. And, you know, pirates won USA zero on that front. They pioneered dual governance. So the captain and the quartermaster were equals on board a pirate ship. Uh, the captain was in charge of the kind of strategy and direction of sail. Quartermasters in charge of like the people uh, and predominantly handing out the punishment and handing out the money, the two things that would be corrupted by or abused by the captain if he were the only person in charge. And they'd seen that happen in the Navy. So they put protections in place to stop it happening again. And yet today we have not entirely, but most companies still operate under a kind of command and control, many, many layers of management system. Pirates gave everybody equal say on board, so everybody got um, a, a stake in the decisions that were made, um, and they also had, uh, as a result, had equal and transparent pay, so everybody knew what everybody was getting. Captain would only get two to four times more than the average crew member, 
um, which was, you know, not done for moral reasons to begin with. Um, it came out of necessity to prevent conflict. They'd just do anything to prevent mutiny from happening. Pirates also were diverse um, out of necessity. You know, talent was the only thing that mattered, so they would recruit people from all over the place. Um, on the far right is a slightly sordid depiction of a female pirate, um, but there were some really, <laughs> there were some pretty famous uh, female pirate captains, Anne Bonny, Mary Reed, um, who you know, kind of no, known for being equally as fierce. And uh, next to the female is um, Black Caesar, one of the many, many black pirate captains. In the latter half of the golden age of piracy, pirates regularly freed slaves, brought them on board, and became part of the crew, went on to be captains. And this is a time when the slave trade was still you know, happening in the rest of the world. So pirates you know, are ahead of the curve on the, on the diversity front. Um, again, it sort of sometimes feels like we're going backwards. Um, pirates had self-organizing teams, so uh, that enabled them to collaborate when it came to fighting a really big battle. So if there was you know, there's something going on, they would um, team up with other pirate crews uh, to, to fight, fight the fight, and then they would scale back down. So they weren't, again, doing everything from the center. They had these autonomous teams, and although they were defined as an international kind of criminal organization, um, because pirates did have quite... They were, they were very well-networked. They really, you know, they did know... Um, about all the other pirates that were uh, around. And that was partly because of the Jolly Roger. Um, every jo every uh, <laughs> pirate um, crew would customise their own Jolly Roger so that you know, you know, you didn't mistake each other for being, oh, that's that crew, they've got a slightly red Jolly Roger. This is genuinely true. Um, but the point was that they enabled them to create this really, really fierce reputation for themselves, and it actually meant that they got into battle less. So pirates um, were probably the least violent people on, at the, on sea at the time, um, because their tagline, the most, you know, pretty blunt, surrender or die, um, they did carry that out. So when they were violent, they were really violent. You know, pirate torture was a thing, but they avoided it uh, wherever possible. And you see the picture in the previous slide of Blackbeard, you know, he used to set light to the ends of his beard um, to kind of create this reputation uh, that preceded him. And, it, and actually, there's no historical record of Blackbeard ever killing anyone. I mean, it maybe happened, but... Um, and finally, this one always blows my mind uh, the most. Um, pirates even had same-sex marriage. They didn't try to bury or suppress what was going on in the culture of their teams. They created a legal and ritual ceremony for it, so sophisticated that it even had an inheritance clause. So if I died, my partner would get my share of whatever booty we were allocated. And then finally, finally, pirates invented the cocktail. So that was, <laughs> that was a bonus. Didn't have all that grog. Um, well... Francis Drake, the first record of rum, sugar, mint, lime all being mixed together was on a Francis Drake ship, the first mojito. So there we go. Uh, pirates, a bit more interesting than you probably think. Um, the point is that they're, trouble they're not troublemakers, but they are innovators. But the most important part about all of this is the concept of the pirate code. Um, the code was what enabled them to actually uh, keep their culture together. So all those um, ideas I've outlined were written down into a real document. It was like the blueprint for their culture. It was how they enabled them to have really, really high levels of accountability and trust and transparency that, you know, you didn't have on any other kind of um, ship at the time. Um, and this has been the first thing that, has, that the modern pirates that I've um, been working with have really taken to. And at the, in Be More Pirate, the original book, Sam kind of tacks the pirate code on the end. But actually what I've discovered is that the pirate code is, is so fundamental. It's the thing that enables you to work out who you are. What, what are you fighting for? We always ask the question, like, well, what are you going to stand up and fight for? Like, what's worth it here? Um, what are your ambitions? 
uh, what really matters. And we started to receive pirate codes, you know, spontaneously. People would say, well, I've, I've written it, I've done it, I've made my code. One of the first ones was from a guy called Robbie who uh, had just set up his new marketing agency called Mere Mortals. He'd spent 20 years in advertising, was like, the culture is pretty toxic. I want to just do it differently. I know I can do it better. And so he started that and sort of set up five principles, um, his five articles. And a code is usually a set of principles that translate into behaviors. If you don't do the behaviors part, it ends up being a kind of set of meaningless values that are just words. You've got to think about how practically you apply these principles. Um, and the other thing that I've noticed about creating a code is it works best when you have some, someone with a blank slate, like Robbie did, or you're at a real crossroads when you're just about to start... Um, you're, you're, you've grown exponentially, actually, which is the case with this next team. I don't know if you've heard of Mrs., Mr. and Mrs. Smith's um, really fun kind of boutique travel company. Started off, as they, in their own words, as like a bunch of ragtag pirates. Um, two founders who launched a guerrilla marketing campaign. It was really successful. They grew really quickly. Um, and then a couple of years ago, hit this kind of, uh, kind of wall where a member of their team um, took his own life. And they were like, wow, we, who are we? Uh, what happened that we didn't notice that? We thought we were a really tight team. We thought we kind of knew how everyone was. And maybe we need to take stock and, and think about what our, what our code is. And so they've kind of gone back to the drawing board and implemented some new, um, new behaviors around well-being. And uh, yeah, kind of gone well we don't necessarily need to be more pirate, but maybe we just need to be pirate more, as that was how, how they put it. And this was one of the most sophisticated pirate codes that I got. And it's from the Child's Rights International Network, a human rights NGO. I was like, does this really apply to human rights? Apparently it does. And she was like, yeah, we, we need to work out what we really stand for. Um, I'm sick of all the jargon, the meaningless kind of vagaries that go around a lot of the NGO, lang like NGO sector. Um, and actually, we are peddling narratives of misery. Um, trying to get people to talk about what's wrong with the world, when actually we need to work out what our vision for what, what right looks like, what good looks like. And yeah, they kind of created a whole new um, code based on um, the principles in the book. The director said, she goes, I just, I just knew as soon as I read it, I don't need a five-year strategy or 10-year business plan. I need a pirate code. Um, and then we started to get people asking to come into organizations um, to run workshops around this. Uh, this is one of the first ones that Sam did with Lego in Sweden. And in the middle of it all, kind of stumbled upon this methodology, which we call, like, uh, I guess, a facilitated mutiny, which is where in a room like this, we'd ask teams to work on um, a rule they want to break and rewrite. And then you'd work on it together. And then we'd say, OK, stand up and announce your new rule. Someone would stand up and tentatively say something about what they thought was wrong. And then we'd say, OK, if, who agrees with that? And almost always, the whole room stands up or 70% of the room stands up and they say, okay, this is a mutiny and you now have permission to go away and make that new thing happen. And it would sort of be a, an almost like a redistribution of power in the room very, very quickly. And it was something we decided started calling professional rule breaking, a way to redistribute power to the people closest to the work, the people who knew the detail of it, but were too afraid to speak up. And the, the word that became almost like a proxy for pirates was permission. This is all about giving people permission. And so we started to see things coming up. This is a team at Manchester City Council, um, quite bureaucratic, quite big, who started to do things like, just said, well, we've just got to change our culture, and it just, we've just got to start. 
And so they kind of created a few bullet points at the, put at the end of their email signatures to explain how they're going to change email culture because they're so um, fed up of their like endless email threads. So it doesn't have to start big. It can be something small that you could start tomorrow. The team at Birdseye um, came up with a whole load of new rules, but here were three, a one-in, one-out rule. So when a new piece of work lands on your desk, you have to let something else go because everybody was already overwhelmed by their schedules. Again, giving people collective permission to say no to stuff. Meeting-free Mondays when you start the week with meetings you know, back-to-back. Inevitably, your work is going to spiral. It was just these simple things, acknowledging these simple things that were going wrong and were making everything else not work. And it had to start with an honest conversation. And sometimes it's a, it's a bigger rule break and it comes from an individual. This is... Um, this one's for Brendan. This is her, a, uh, we had a conversation about it earlier, but this is Dr. Francisca Elmer. She's a Swiss marine biologist who works in the Caribbean, real, real pirates of the Caribbean. And she read Be More Pirate and realized, um, looking at the question, what would I stand up and fight for? She said, well, climate change, really. Like, that's what I talk about in my lessons, but am I actually really doing anything about it? Not really. Um, and then... A couple of weeks later, she got an email about the International Coral Reef Conference, which happens every four years. It's like the big cheese of their, of their profession. Huge conference in, you know, located somewhere in the world. 5,000 uh, marine biologists come. She got the email about it. It was supposed to be happening in Germany this year. And she said, I don't think we should be flying people across the world to go to this conference anymore. It doesn't fit with our values. We always end the conference with this big call out about how coral reefs are being destroyed. So what are we doing here? <laughs> and she says, so she just wrote that one email back, pretty much as I just said it, like, should we really do this? Is there a different way we could do this? And she said, the list exploded. It was like, wow. And she got people started to email her and said, yeah, I thought about this. I'd like to do it. What if we could hold local events? What if we could hold remote kind of ICRS meetings? And she said, yeah, I'd like to. I'm going to do some in the Caribbean. I'm going to kind of make it about, about the community. I'm going to invite uh, the universities. I'm going to invite environmental campaigners. I'm going to make it bigger than just the science. And she started, and do, she started doing it. And of course, the, the big conference, being the Navy, said, we don't want you to do this, taking our branding, et cetera, et cetera. And she said, well, I think this is in the, in the greater good. I think this is in our interest. How can we partner with you on this? And they started to say, we'll run these in tandem. And then she, she managed to get 16 other... Um, scientists running remote events all over, people in Cuba and Venezuela, people who wouldn't actually be able to afford to go to the, the real conference. And so it kind of erupted from this original sort of mutiny into this sort of movement that she's now started. Um, and that's why one of the reasons why when we talk about the nature of like the rules that we should break and, what, and the kind of action we need to take to get started with any of this stuff around being more pirate, Sam and I always talk about uh, small, bold actions. It's there to create momentum, first of all. Um, something that is logistically easy to do, like just sending the email you maybe feel a little bit afraid of sending, but perhaps should. Bold, i.e. it makes you feel a little bit afraid, but also a little bit excited about the potential of what could come of it. Um, but logistically easy and um, can fit within your sort of nine to five. Um, and it's not really about um, necessarily about having the kind of impact that Francisca's email had. Sometimes it's just about the impact it has on you. It's about testing yourself. Um, being able to just kind of go, can I do the thing that like I thought about doing many, many times before, but kind of whatever reason, talk myself out of it. Um, so small, bold actions. Because pirates always go where others fear to tread. Um, that's the gist of it. And uh, the reason for that is that innovation comes from the edges of the map. It's um, 
we can't know, you know, we can't, we've got to go where we're afraid to go. We've got to go, be willing to step into the darkness. And we always talk about creativity and we talk about innovation. In fact, I got, one of my pirates sort of said, you know, I'm so sick of innovation porn. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, another shiny thing. When really the, the reality of it is, is about being willing to go to the edges, to work out what's not being said. Who am I not talking to? Who's way out of my, my, my zone? Um, and I think this is really, really important, especially for the moment we're in now. Um, so this is some of my pirates. Um, uh, this is my crew, um, some of the things they've sent me over the years, because the thing about going into the darkness is it's way easier to do if you've got some people who've got your back. I would absolutely never say to anyone, um, go and be more pirate on your own. Go and do it, like be the only person challenging, being the only person breaking rules. You have to um, find your allies. The first thing you need to do is go into your team and go, who else feels like this? Who else is kind of, you know, frustrated with what's going on here? Who else kind of thinks that doesn't make any sense? And just meet and have a coffee one, one night with no agenda. Uh, and I found that it starts to build from there. And crew building has been a really, really key, uh, important part of growing this as a, as a community. Um, this is one of the crews. This is a, it was incredible. It was a, a, a single kind of arts producer who one day said, you know, does anyone want to challenge the way that funding is allocated in the arts sector? One month later, she's got a thousand people on a Facebook page going, yeah, we really need to do something about this. And my favorite pirate crew, um, what I like to refer to as the health and social care pirates or the Northern Mutiny, a group of um, people across Greater Manchester who work across health and social care, and the ra their rallying cry is to rehumanize the system. And it's been like this since the beginning. Um, and now it's very interesting being in this big moment where healthcare is in the spotlight. And so much of the things that they've said are coming true, that we need to start from the point of people, not process. Um, and that all of the red tape that is, that's there within the NHS and, and beyond is, is not necessarily helping people. Um, and so they've done loads of various rule breaking. They've changed recruitment procedures um, to kind of rec you know, recruit from a wider pool. They have gone into walked into hospitals carrying Be More Pirate and gone, how can we make use of the dead, like the dead waiting areas here so we can facilitate more connection between people because illness is really lonely. So doing all these incredible things, but the most important thing is like, they're the sounding board to each other. They are the people that at the end of the day, they can go back and check decisions with. Um, they don't necessarily all come from the same backgrounds, but they share common values. Um, they've got a kind of code between them. It's been incredibly inspiring to me. Um, it's really, as well, has, for the first time in my life, I don't have a homogenous personal kind of network. I have, I'm friends with, you know, middle-aged Mancunian women, predominantly. And prior to that, I was just, you know, in a London office with lots of middle-class white people who all agreed with me. So, yeah. I think that this is particularly important in, in, in the now moment because, you know, this is the pretty apocalyptic scene from Brixton Sainsbury's back in March 2020. Um, we all know that we now sit in a moment where there is more possibility than there ever was before to make changes. There's never been a better time to be more pirates. And the flip side of, you know, the crisis is, of course, the opportunity not to be too cheesy and repeat that oft said phrase. But that is my challenge to you when we're talking about scaling up and growth. Um, you know, to what end, really? Um, what are we trying to scale? Are we gonna, just going to scale profit? Or are we going to scale the good things underneath it? Um, the human relationships and connections? Are we going to scale good mental health? Um, because pretty much, I think, 50% of people today have talked to me about their children. So 
You know, what, what is it? What are we trying to do here? Um, but the biggest lesson, I think, for Be More Pirate is this is... Um, it's the first time I put this picture in a, in a presentation, if I'm honest. And you're probably thinking, what, what mother lets their eight-year-old go to a party in a string bikini type thing? It's 80s parenting right there. But um, <laughs> that is me, age eight, going to a pirate party. And um, the point is, is, I'm not dressed like a pirate. because, And that is the most pirate thing. You have to be willing to go against the grain, to listen to yourself, do what you want to do, uh, what feels right to you. Um, it's definitely not about always attacking or always being the rebel. Um, one, one of my pirates pointed out to me that 80% of time pirates were pirates. They were not in battle. They were scrubbing the deck, looking after the crews, organizing themselves, um, working, at, you know, working out their code. So being more pirate isn't just about the rebellion. Um, it's also about you know, yeah, hearing, hearing yourself, knowing your values, and knowing how to collaborate. Final, final one's just a plug. I put all these stories into, my, into our new book. Um, all the lessons that I've learned from our community uh, have been wrapped up in this new book, How to Be More Pirate, which is what I describe as the reality of being pirate. Um, what it looks like when you really try to put this into practice in working teams. Thank you very much. <laughs>